This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And if there's a silver lining to Trump, I, I hope that it's people realize you know, it's the importance of American power, but it needs to be guided, obviously, by someone who isn't Donald Trump. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to a podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. Speaking of beating Donald Trump, I've been thinking about the way in which we talk about 2020. And just as generals are supposed to always fight the last war, I think that, you know, election strategists, both professional and, you know, armchair like you and me, might be in danger of fighting the last war again. Um, nearly everybody is talking about how do we win back the white working class, which often, you know, is basically code for how do we win back Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, those three states that Hillary Clinton lost by about 80,000 votes, because it seems like those are the states we should go back to win. But I think that there's sort of two false assumptions in here. The first false assumption is that political geography is relatively stable, that it hasn't changed much over time. But when you look back at the electoral map of the United States over the last 200 years, it changes every time. Every election to every election is really much more different than you think. So just one example which year do you think California first voted Democrat in a competitive election where it really mattered? 1992. That's the first time in the 20th century that California voted Democrat in that kind of competitive election. Before that, it was Republican. So that's just one little example of how quickly the political geography changes. And then the second point is that it's not clear to me, even if we wanted to win back Pennsylvania and Michigan, if we want to concentrate on that, that the easiest way of doing that is to focus on voters who have gone from Obama four and eight years ago to Trump today. Because the slow political drift of the working class towards the far right is something we've seen in many other countries. In France, from 2007 to 2012, the share of a vote for the Front National among the working class doubled, roughly from 15 to 30 percent. And now at the last election, it doubled again rising above 60%. And you see that in other countries, in Austria, 87% of a working class voted for a far-right candidate at the presidential elections last year. And so I think when we have to decide, do we go with the trends that favor Democrats, a growing suburban class that's quite liberal, a growing minority population, or do we try to reverse the trend that goes against Democrats, particularly the drift of working-class people to the right, I think the former might be better than the latter. Now, I want to caveat all of this by saying slicing and dicing the electorate, as Barack Obama pointed out in 2004, is often the wrong way to go. The problem with last year's election campaign, the problem with Hillary Clinton's campaign, was not that she sliced and diced the electorate wrongly. It was that as well. But it mainly was that she was so focused on slicing and dicing the electorate at all 
but she didn't wind up making an appeal that actually spoke to all Americans. So as we go into 2020, let's keep in mind that we can win the Electoral College by flipping Florida and Arizona or South Carolina, North Carolina, any of those states. Let's keep that in mind. Let's not become obsessed with trying to win back the voters we won last time, but think about how we make a really attractive appeal to all Americans and figure out how this electoral map will wind up looking a few months before the election. I'm really thrilled to have uh, Jamie Kerchak on the show today. Jamie is a young writer and columnist. He writes a lot for The Daily Beast, for example. And he just has a new book out, The End of Europe, which really talks about some of the deep challenges that Europe is facing and, and the West more largely is facing. We had a really fascinating conversation, uh, both about Putin and the threat to the international order, but also about some of the domestic threats to uh, democratic societies, including actually the threat from left populists, which Jamie feels especially passionately about. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I mean, you know, you you write about so many things and have your fingers in so many pies that I don't quite know where to start. And I really look forward to covering all this territory with you. But but let's start with your book, The End of Europe. And so you're really pessimistic about where Europe is headed, uh, you know, across a whole range of dimensions. So so why do you think we have to be specifically worried about the end of the West and, and, and the way in which Europe is contributing to it? Well, it just seems that a lot of nasty traditions that we thought were sort of buried in Europe are coming back, uh, whether it's Russian aggression or uh, left-wing and right-wing populism, really bad economic ideas, anti-Semitism, which uh, manifests itself in various forms, right-wing anti-Semitism, left-wing anti-Semitism, uh, Islamist anti-Semitism. And so it's obviously... It's, it's not as bad as the 1930s. I'm not trying to claim that. But it does seem that we're entering this, this phase where people have either forgotten uh, the lessons of 20th century Europe or they seem to have um, alternative explanations for why they happened and, and, and how to solve them. Um, and added to this mix, you have you know, Donald Trump, who really upsets the past 75 years of post-war American foreign policy in terms of his attitudes towards Europe. Um, and it puts so that puts the Europeans geopolitically in a de- in a very difficult position because they're not used to having an American president who is at best apathetic, if not actively hostile to the European project, while simultaneously having this sort of strange affinity for the Russians. The Russia story hasn't really panned out fully yet. I, you know, Trump has not behaved in the way that many of us feared he would with with regard to Putin, certainly with the latest news in Syria. It's kind of frustrating the the sort of Trump is a is a Putin plant narrative. But it is a it is a difficult geopolitical situation for Europe to to be in, sort of stuck between Washington and Moscow. So this seems to me, you know, in terms of foreign policy, I think Europeans really haven't actually responded to that properly yet. There's a lot of uh, European hostility towards America at the moment. American Europeans trust America about as much as they trust Russia in many countries at the moment, which is sort of scary in itself. But I certainly know from Germany and other countries that they don't, they haven't thought through what the long-term implications might be if the United States is no longer on the side of liberal democracy in Europe. You know, certainly in Germany, the two defining aspects of its foreign policy assumptions ever since the end of World War II where that they can rely on America for their security guarantee, 
Right. And that being allied with America is good for its internal order as well, because America was in favor of the values that, you know, Western Europe was trying to embrace, individual freedom and, and, and human rights and all those kinds of things. And and now when you sort of both are dealing with an administration that you don't know whether they stand by NATO's Article 5, one day they do, one day they don't, and they seem to have, a, at least the president seems to have a real preference for authoritarian dictators over Democrats, all of the people who praises from Xi in China to Putin in Russia to Duterte in the Philippines and all the people he attacked, you know, Angela Merkel and Justin Trudeau and, you know, the Prime Minister of Australia and so on. It really should 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 radically reorient your foreign policy. I mean, how do you think Europe should react in terms of foreign policy? What should we what what should European governments be doing in order to stand up for liberal democracy abroad in order to fortify the liberal democracies at home faced with and America under Donald Trump? I mean, I would counsel a little bit against some of the alarmism that's um, wafting through some European capitals. I mean, for one, uh, America is not Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is not America. You know, he lost the popular vote by, by 3 million votes, despite his uh, constant protestations uh, to the contrary. Um, and secondly, I don't think that the American people voted for Donald Trump because of this sort of transactional, belligerent, nationalist foreign policy. They weren't bothered by it, and that's deeply worrying to me, yet that's not the reason why he won. So I wouldn't read too much into him being president, that this means necessarily that there is some sort of you know, massive fundamental shift in the United States. But isn't the uh, shift just that that it's possible? I mean, you know, yes. from the perspective of Europe, we are saying, look, we don't have to have a real army. We don't have to have walking tanks or planes or anything because America is going to come to our rescue. And, and you know, now you realize that, sure, it might come to our rescue. Trump might be temporary phase. Even this administration might actually defend Western Europe if there was a real, you know, attack or anything like that. But how now can you rely on it? So, so I agree with you that Trump is in America and America is in Trump. But, but what seems to matter is that the guarantee isn't there anymore in the way yeah. it was. No, I think that's fair. And I think that's exactly what Chancellor Merkel was saying in the, the Munich Beer Hall speech that got so much attention. You know, she wasn't saying the transatlantic relationship is over. She was saying we need to recalibrate because things are not the way they used to be. And they might not be the way that we've you know, counted upon them being for the foreseeable future. As to what the Europeans can do, that's a really difficult question, because I'm not sure if Europe is really capable of defending itself in the way that it, I mean, certainly not to the extent that it's been used to for the past 75 years. It's going to take a long time if they're, if they really truly can't depend upon the United States. It's, it would take a long time for them to get the, the resources, the capabilities to be able to make up for what the United States provides in terms of security. So it's not just a, a drastic, you know, mental change that would have to occur in people's heads to kind of wrap themselves around this new world that we're in. But in terms of, you know, actual tangible resources, it, I think it would be quite difficult for, for Europe to get its act together in that sense. So this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
so so that's right. I mean, I, my sense is that they need to, and that actually, ironically, the best chance of saving the transatlantic relationship in the short run and the best chance of continuing to be defenders of democracy in the worst case, if America turns out to be more synonymous with Trump than you or I want to think, is to invest a lot in the military now, right? That, that, yeah. that for countries that aren't keeping their promises to spend 2% of a GDP on the military, which was agreed on, at a NATO summit in Wales a few years ago, you know, spending actual money on the military now both helps to give Trump a greater incentive for keeping up the partnership with Europe, takes away his easiest argument for why NATO is sort of not working obsolete because Europeans are free riding and aren't sort of pulling their weight. And it gives Europeans a little bit more flexibility and autonomy in the foreign policy in the long run. And if they don't do that, and America does end up going a real isolationist route, the temptation for being neutral between East and West, for being neutral between the United States and Russia is only going to grow. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And this is actually a theme I touch upon in the book in the Germany chapter, because I think you're seeing on the Social Democratic Party in Germany, a real sort of reversion to its kind of Ostpolitik past, this sort of neutralist, you know, middle ground um, position that they want to take. And they want Germany to be to be basically in between the United States and Russia. And Trump, obviously, you know, he feeds into that impulse. He makes it very easy for those sorts of voices in Germany to be heard. But you're hearing the leader of the Social Democratic Party now, Martin Schultz, he's coming out against, uh, or, or it's, uh, well, I, I believe it's him, but also uh, Sigmar Gabriel, the actual foreign minister. They've come out pretty strongly against spending 2%. Yeah, I think Sigmar Gabriel called it lunacy to spend 2%. We've talked a little bit about foreign policy. What about economic policy? You mentioned that there's a lot of sort of bad economic policy ideas wafting around in Europe, and that's one of the things you're really worried about. What do you mean by that? Uh, I think this like left-wing populism of the type that we saw and are seeing in Greece, the rise of a party like Podemos, it's attacks on neoliberalism, which is this word that's become a curse word in the way that it's used. At least the, the attacks seem to imply people wanting to return to basically an economic policy you know, that was before Tony Blair in Britain or Gerhard Schroeder uh, in Germany, you know, like, a, like, like an old left social democratic economic policy that I just don't think is very feasible in the 21st century, I don't think it was very feasible in the, you know, latter parts of the 20th century. So let's let's, let's unpack this a little bit. You wrote uh, a really interesting essay called uh, "Roughly I'm a Neoliberal and I'm Proud of It" recently, and 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 I think that's fascinating. But 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 I think in Europe, you know, there's a lot of different things going on here, and I'm sympathetic to some of the things that you're saying, but I'm perhaps less sympathetic to some other things you're saying. So, you know, the first is that when you look at the crisis in Europe over the last 10 years, the misconstruction of a euro is surely a big part of it. And when you look at countries like Greece, and to some degree Spain and Italy, they are laboring under a huge debt burden that is very difficult to see how they, they can get out of. The euro makes it much more difficult for those economies to succeed and thrive for a number of technical reasons, but the most straightforward of which being that their currency is artificially overvalued, that if it weren't part of this much larger currency zone, you know, the the, the, the Greek drachma would just be much cheaper than, than the euro is now, and that would make it easier to have investments there, to um, export uh, Greek goods and so on. And a lot of the Northern European countries are just telling them, look, just save your way out of this. 
and you'll be fine. And, and, and you know, most IMF economists at this point think that is not going to work. So the fact that people are angry against that mix between strict Eurozone rules and an austerity politics that doesn't seem to be working, uh, to me, seems quite understandable. And, and, and you know, perhaps it's sort of too intellectually lazy to say, oh, this is neoliberal and that's what's bad about it. Yeah. But putting that aside, do, do you see that there's an understandable set of grievances here that is driving yeah. some of that politics? Well, I definitely understand the grievances, and I think we need some sort of middle ground between these two extremes that you described. And I hope now that we might be able to achieve that with Emmanuel Macron coming into power in France with a huge majority. And it seems that he and Chancellor Merkel are really going to be able to work well together on these very questions that you're talking about in terms of reforming the Eurozone and be able to you know, meet the kind of Schäuble position halfway. Um, but I feel like as much as people might be angry at austerity, which to me is really just sort of a pejorative word for you know, smart budgeting, it's, it's also it's become like neoliberal, it's become this like curse word that people use. It seems that a lot of the criticisms are just far more, and the solutions that are being offered are just far more extreme than what is called for. And so, you know, I don't think that things are so you know, bad in Britain that you need to have the economic policies that are being proposed by, you know, Jeremy Corbyn. So so let's go into a little bit because I think, okay, so so one thing is that we seem to agree that that sort of the the line of the German finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble, whom you referenced, which is essentially to say, you know, let Greece save a way out of this crisis, is wrong in the context of the euro crisis. But but let's think about, you know, what challenge do you think what you call the populist left is is posing to good economic governance and and more broadly to a sort of liberal democratic values we we we, we care for. And I think the, the best example of those probably are. You know movements like Podemos in 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 Spain and perhaps Cinque Stelle in Italy. I mean, what what do you see in those movements that concerns you? What in what ways are they challenging good economic governance? Well, they seem to be quite nationalist. For one, they seem to be forgetting that things weren't you know great in the eighties and nineties before the euro was was introduced in these countries, and when inflation would go very high and the savings of people would be reduced because of that. I think that there's this sort of lack of memory or or just maybe expectations have risen to such a point that the analysis has gone off. But it's not so much the economic governance that concerns me as it is, you know, the deeper sort of appreciation for liberal values that, you know, you've been talking a lot about for the past couple of years. A lot of these parties are authoritarian in their outlook. Certainly they are neutral towards Russia, if not sympathetic to the Russians. They are hostile to the United States and the transatlantic alliance, hostile to NATO. And I think this is most worrying in Britain, where you have really the most, you know, hardcore left-wing member of the British Parliament seizing control of the Labour Party and solidifying control over that party um, as a result of the election. And I think that there really has been an insouciance towards this from the respectable left. I mean, you know, in the United States, a lot of us said that, you know, we are going to judge our conservative peers on whether or not they stand up to Donald Trump and the, the nastiness that he represents and the threat he poses to liberal norms and whatnot. I see absolutely no difference in that analysis applying to Jeremy Corbyn. I think he is just as, if not more, hostile to the basic liberal values that, you know, we claim to believe in. 
mean, he worse, I say, because I think Trump doesn't really believe in much. I think he's just sort of a bull in a, in a china shop who has who has, you know, who personally has authoritarian tendencies. Jeremy Corbyn is, a, is an ideological person who's committed 35 years of his life to this basically, you know, allying himself with every enemy of the British state from the Argentinian junta to the Irish Republican army. And I just haven't seen, I'm actually, you know, not only am I seeing an insouciance towards this, I'm seeing an acceptance of it. I mean, Roger Cohen in the New York Times endorsed Jeremy Corbyn two weeks ago. I'm seeing a lot of people on Twitter and just in general, in kind of the left-wing commentariat, more of the kind of Bernie Sanders types really supporting Jeremy Corbyn. And I think the comparison to Bernie Sanders is really unfair. I mean, Bernie Sanders, they might, you know, he might agree with Jeremy Corbyn on a lot of the economic analysis, but, you know, but, but Bernie Sanders did not spend 35 years his, or his entire political career, you know, standing alongside every two-bit uh, anti-American terrorist group and, and dictatorship in the world. Um, and whether or not the American admirers of Jeremy Corbyn understand this or not, I'm not sure. Some of them do and embrace it fully, which is frightening. Many of them are just, I think, ignorant and naive of it. So I, I agree with a lot of this. The, the, the right analogy to Jeremy Corbyn always struck me to be, if anything in American politics, Jill Stein rather than Bernie Sanders. And certainly I'm concerned about the political movements across Europe who are deeply favorable to Venezuela and think, or at least until a couple of years ago, we're, thinking, we're talking very loudly about how that is the model for European economic policy. They're a little more quiet about it now, but few of them have actually disowned it. People who've always thought of every enemy of America as, by definition, their friend, from the IRA and its opposition to, to Britain, to, to, to Hamas, to the Iranian state, and so on. And, and, and in terms of foreign policy, that's incredibly worrying. But I guess I want to tease out a little bit more whether or not there's something dangerous here economically. And and there it seems to me that actually, um, you know, your analogy with Trump is interesting, right? I mean, Trump is ending up with quite scary foreign policy and quite scary domestic governance in terms of his systematic violation of democratic norms, mm. from the firing of Comey to the, you know, loud reflections about possibly firing uh, Mueller, um, to a lot of other, you know, rhetoric of calling the press enemies of the American people and so on. But in terms of economic policy, he winds up doing something that's sort of a turbocharged version of right-wing economic policy that's actually quite traditional in certain ways. And mm. I think there could be an argument to be made about left populism in Europe that it's sort of similar. But actually, the things it's most worrying about is civil liberties, is its deep hostility to the press, is its open flirtation with Russia, is its, you know, historical attachment to left-wing dictatorships from Venezuela to Cuba. But that on economic policy, you know, you might disagree with some parts of it, but it doesn't seem there that, you know, Corbyn's economic policy is sort of wise or unwise, right or wrong, that it's sort of completely out of keeping with things that we've historically seen in liberal democracies or that could be within the space of what we should accept as acceptable political positions within democracy. So that's sort of one view of it. And then the other view is that perhaps, you know, some movements like Podemos and so on sort of go further and actually we do want to abolish capitalism in, in an even more radical way. So, so where, specifically holding you to the economic point, how worried are you about left populism in Europe? Well, I think, we're well, going back to Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Manifesto 
was not as extreme as Jeremy Corbyn would have liked it. I, I still think it would you know, bankrupt the country, which is pro- a problem. And I don't think it was costed out. And I don't think it was I don't think the Tories spent any time scrutinizing it. But what's interesting is that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn himself, um, when he's not constrained by his party, uh, is, is, is really extreme. And I mean, last week after this horrible fire um, in this uh, this tower in West London, which has taken the lives of um, almost 80 people, he's been going on television and many of his supporters are openly calling to say that they sh- that the government should requisition private property, private apartments that o- that are owned by private citizens to house the people who lost their homes. I mean, this is, you know, this is like a Zimbabwe style land grab that's being proposed. And, you know, aside from the kind of Tory press, I'm not seeing the outrage about this in the Western world. I mean, imagine if, you know, Bernie Sanders got up and said, we're just going to take private homes and we're going to put people in them. So that, you know, that to me is pretty extreme. So I agree that, that that's extreme and, and, and unacceptable. And there's an equivalent to that, by the way, with Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the French sort of communist-allied presidential candidate who did surprisingly well in the first round, was actually the, the candidate whom a plurality of young French voters uh, supported. And he just wants a 100% tax on earnings above, I believe, 400,000 euros, which is also a form of requisition, right? Um, mm. so, abs- so all of that is absolutely right. Um, but I want to make the counterpoint a little bit in terms of giving credence to the fact that there is something wrong with the economic policy we're pursuing at the moment. And that doesn't have to be anti-globalization. It doesn't have to be a return to, you know, the economic policy of, you know, say, labor in the 1970s, which which, mm. which didn't work in many ways. But talking about the fire you, you, you mentioned, there was a really powerful letter to the editor in a local newspaper of somebody who was saying, look, this is this incredibly rich council of, of Kensington. And for the last years, this council kept giving its local residents a rebate of about a thousand, so about a hundred pounds a year. Um, just a just a check in the mail, because they had um, managed to cut costs on spending for local social services and so on. Now, by the way, this check was only available to people who didn't use especially expensive council services like council housing. So the people in the tower right. never saw that hundred pounds. The very wealthy people in the council who make up the majority of it, it's an area of London that's mostly very wealthy but has some pockets of poverty, did see it. And this person was returning that £100 check because he was saying it was blood money. It was recruited, it was it was made from the savings to the council housing, from the fact that they, that they were using flammable materials and renovating them, that they hadn't installed a sprinkler system, all of those things that that should seem unimaginable in, you know, a rich democracy like Great Britain. And so, you know, I I do think that there is something in between those things, but we should be looking for an economic policy that is open to globalization, that recognizes that we can't go back on it, that recognizes that, um, you know, confiscation and 100% tax rates are not the solution. But at the same time, it does seem sometimes like our priorities are wrong and that there's much more we can do to include all citizens in in sustainable growth. That instead of giving that £100 rebate check to local residents, we should have been spending it on sprinklers in this tower. Now, I don't think that the populist left is expressing the views that I have, but I think that there's a sort of danger that in 
saying, look, there's something deeply wrong with the populist left, which I agree with, we wind up being blind to some of the problems. We sort of set up this dichotomy, which is, well, either you're against globalization and capitalism and so on, or everything is great. And it seems to me that I am neither in one place nor in the other place politically. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I'm, I'm not sure many people would say everything is great, but I'm not sure that, you know, what what happened with this tower is that, you know, I'm not sure that rises to the level of indicting the entire system. We need to, you know, you can, you, can, you can support a free market system. You can support a regulated capitalist system that also takes care of the poorest and the most vulnerable in society. And that may sound like a very vague conception of the good, but I generally think that that's what most people in Western societies want in their governments. It's just a question of how best do we fulfill that aim. I mean, I think that's right. And I think there's a, there's, there's, there's a danger here that, you, you know, one, one way of thinking about this is that to me, some greater degree of economic equality, or at least of allowing people to really share in the proceeds of globalization, is not just a question of economic justice. It's a question of regime stability. But what we've lost out of sight is that actually finding the economic policies that do embrace globalization, that do embrace the great upside potential of all of our new technologies and so on, but that also make sure that a broad segment of a population gets something out of them, shares in them, is, mm. is what we need in order to buy the political support to keep our system stable. So it's right in yeah. itself, but it's also necessary in order for the system to to remain. So, so the other question I had about you know, the changes that are necessary are actually about the sort of international order, right? It seems to me that uh, both, both the left in America and other countries and, and more broadly, you know, countries like India or Nigeria um, have for a long time been pushing against the liberal international order in part because they thought that it was so stable that nothing could destroy it, but nothing could topple it over. Um, and there are some injustices in it. There are some ways in which it favors the rich and more powerful countries, as as any international order always has. And so they just focus the energies in pushing against it and hoping to make a little dent in it that 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 might smoothen it out and might make it a little um, more just. And now we're suddenly in a situation where we realize that a lot of this order is quite hollow uh, in the middle. But if you really push against it, it might topple over, and then you could end up. A, with a world run by Russia and Iran and China, which is not going to be more just. It's not going to be more conducive either to the values that the American left stands for or to the national interests of India or Nigeria or all of those kinds of countries. And so, you know, to me, the question is, how do we actually talk about the liberal international order, but also perhaps reform it to give those countries a real stake in it and to give... Um, the critics of it in Western Europe and North America are real stake in it. And so, so where, where, do you th where do you think we should go with that? Or do you think that's just the wrong way of thinking about it? And we should well, I think there's been a lot of um, kind of hypocritical laments about the downfall of the liberal world order, um, particularly from people on the left in the United States, from former Obama administration people. Um, because I really think that the liberal international order started crumbling under President Obama. Because what I think what ultimately determines the liberal international order is American power. And I think that the last administration was very uncomfortable with it. Um, and so it's a little annoying to see, you know, partisans of the last administration 
who did nothing in Syria, who initiated the reset with Russia and basically allowed the Russians to get away with everything for six years, seven years, you know, now decry the downfall of the liberal world order. And I, I wrote about this a couple of months ago in an essay for the American interest. And I really think that the, the foreign policy worldviews of Obama and Trump, they're obviously very different in um, rhetoric, uh, but they really kind of seek the same thing, which is a world in which the United States is playing a less active role. Trump dresses it up in very antagonistic, belligerent, you know, nationalist rhetoric about America first. Uh, Obama dresses it up in utopian uh, language about, you know, a world without alliances where everyone kind of, you know, sings kumbaya. But the results are the same. And it's basically a world where the United States um, is not the most powerful, is not is not the hegemonic power. And if there's a silver lining to Trump, I, I hope that its people realize, you know, it's the importance of American power, but it needs to be guided, obviously, by someone who isn't Donald Trump. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I, I think li to me, liberal international order is synonymous with American hegemony. And I think that is a concept that I think a lot of people have difficulty wrapping their heads around, um, particularly people now who are um, lamenting it. I think I have a slightly different view here, which is that part of the question of hegemony is to what degree do you set up rules from which all of the states in the system profit? And, and there it seems to me that the Obama administration was committed to, say, the defense of Western Europe. It was committed um, in many ways to, to America being the most powerful country, but they, were, they had diff very different ideas about what to do with that preeminence. And, you know, the problem with Trump is that they, he doesn't want America to be a hegemon in part because he doesn't recognize any of the duties or responsibilities that would come with it. More broadly, and, and, and sort of as, as a last question, I, I would love to know, what do you see as a threat to democracy in the United States? I mean, how do you think we are doing at confronting some of your authoritarian instincts in the Trump administration and so on? Well, I've been saying for a while now that Donald Trump isn't a fascist, he's a golfer. And what I mean by this is that he's not ideologically committed to the destruction of American democracy. Uh, and I think this matters because it matters how the resistance, if you will, should calibrate itself to what we're dealing with. I think calling oneself a member of the resistance is ridiculous. No one is resisting anything. We still live in a democracy. Trump presents a threat, obviously, but it's more because of his authoritarian personality, his lack of respect for rules and institutions, than it is some deep desire to transform the United States into the Third Reich where if you listen to a lot of people, that seems to be what they think Trump and Steve Bannon are aiming to do. Uh, I am, you know, I'm optimistic about our, our ability to move through this. Trump hasn't wrecked the system. He has a very loud and noisy and active opposition um, in Congress, on the streets, in civil society. Uh, the media is free and is investigating everything about this administration to the extent that I think they're often overdoing it. Uh, they're blowing things out of proportion often. So I'm not so worried about the immediate term. It's more of a long-term threat. I think, I mean, to me, this is something that the country will never live down. The fact that we elected a man like this is shameful. Um, and, it, and it worries me in the sense that, you know, now that we've done this, then, well, to quote Marine Le Pen, you know, anything is possible. That a guy like this was elected 
It could mean that, you know, Oprah Winfrey could be elected, but it could also mean that someone much worse than Trump um, on the right, someone who, you know, actually is an ideological authoritarian in the sense that Trump isn't, that a person like that could perhaps one day be elected president of the United States. Well, uh, on that optimistic note, Jamie, uh, thank you so much for, for, for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Start a pyramid scheme. People can get in on the right to sell subscriptions to The Good Fight for the low, low price of $2,499. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.